Spinoza and the Bible by Matthew Arnold Part 1 Read by Daniel Davison This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Spinoza and the Bible By the sentence of the angels, by the decree of the saints, we anathematize, cut off, curse, and execrate Baruch Spinoza in the presence of these sacred books with the six hundred and thirteen precepts which are written therein, with the anathema wherewith Joshua anathematized Jericho, with the cursing wherewith Elisha cursed the children, and with all the cursings which are written in the book of the law. Cursed be he by day, and cursed by night. Cursed when he lieth down, and cursed when he riseth up. Cursed when he goeth out, and cursed when he cometh in. The Lord pardon him never. The wrath and fury of the Lord burn upon this man, and bring upon him all the curses which are written in the book of the law. The Lord blot out his name under heaven. The Lord set him apart for destruction from all the tribes of Israel, with all the curses of the firmament which are written in the book of this law. There shall no man speak to him, no man write to him, no man show him any kindness, no man stay under the same roof with him, no man come nigh him. With these amenities, the current compliments of theological parting, the Jews of the Portuguese synagogue at Amsterdam took in 1656 and not in 1660, as has till now been commonly supposed, their leave of their erring brother, Baruch or Benedict Spinoza. They remained children of Israel, and he became a child of modern Europe. That was in 1656, and Spinoza died in 1677 at the early age of 44. Glory had not found him out. His short life, a life of unbroken diligence, kindliness, and purity, was passed in seclusion. But in spite of that seclusion, in spite of the shortness of his career, in spite of the hostility of the dispensers of renown in the 18th century, of Voltaire's disparagement and Bale's detraction, in spite of the repellent form which he has given to his principal work, in spite of the exterior semblance of a rigid dogmatism alien to the most essential tendencies of modern philosophy, in spite, finally, of the immense weight of disfavor cast upon him by the long-repeated charge of atheism, Spinoza's name has silently risen in importance. The man and his work have attracted a steadily increasing notice, and bid fair to become soon what they deserve to become in the history of modern philosophy, the central point of interest. An avowed translation of one of his works, his Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, has at last made its appearance in English. It is the principal work which Spinoza published in his lifetime. His book on ethics, the work on which his fame rests, is posthumous. The English translator has not done his task well. Of the character of his version, there can, I am afraid, be no doubt. One such passage as the following is decisive. 
I confess that while with them, the theologians, I have never been able sufficiently to admire the unfathomed mysteries of Scripture, I have still found them giving utterance to nothing but Aristotelian and Platonic speculations, artfully dressed up and cunningly accommodated to holy writ, lest the speakers should show themselves too plainly to belong to the sect of the Grecian heathens. Nor was it enough for these men to discourse with the Greeks. They have further taken to raving with the Hebrew prophets. This professes to be a translation of these words of Spinoza. Fateo eos non quam satis mirare potuisi scripturae profondissima mysteria, at tamen praetor aristotelicorum vel platonicorum speculationes nihil docuisse video, atque his negentilis sectare viderentur scripturum accomodaverun, non satis his fuit cum graecis insanere, sed profetus comiistem deliravisse voluerunt. After one such specimen of a translator's force, the experienced reader has a sort of instinct that he may as well close the book at once, with a smile or a sigh according as he happens to be a follower of the weeping or of the laughing philosopher, if in spite of this instinct he persists in going on with the English version of the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus, he will find many more such specimens. It is not, however, my intention to fill my space with these, or with strictures upon their author. I prefer to remark that he renders a service to literary history by pointing out in his preface how to bail may be traced the disfavor in which the name of Spinoza was so long held, that in his observations on the system of the Church of England he shows a laudable freedom from the prejudices of ordinary English liberals of that advanced school to which he clearly belonged, and lastly, that, though he manifests little familiarity with Latin, he seems to have considerable familiarity with philosophy, and to be well able to follow and comprehend speculative reasoning. Let me advise him to unite his forces with those of some one who has that accurate knowledge of Latin which he himself has not, and then, perhaps, of that union a really good translation of Spinoza will be the result. And having given him this advice, let me again turn for a little to the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus itself. This work, as I have already said, is a work on the interpretation of Scripture. It treats of the Bible. What was it exactly which Spinoza thought about the Bible and its inspiration? That will be at the present moment the central point of interest for the English readers of his treatise. Now it is to be observed that just on this very point the treatise, interesting and remarkable as it is, will fail to satisfy the reader. It is important to seize this notion quite firmly, and not to quit hold of it while one is reading Spinoza's work. The scope of that work is this. Spinoza sees that the life and practice of Christian nations professing the religion of the Bible are not the due fruits of the religion of the Bible. He sees only hatred, bitterness, and strife, where he might have expected to see love, joy, and peace in believing. And he asks himself the reason of this. The reason is, he says, 
that these people misunderstand their Bible. Well then, is his conclusion, and I will write a Tractatus Theological Politicus. I will show these people that taking the Bible for granted, taking it to be all which it asserts itself to be, taking it to have all the authority which it claims, it is not what they imagine it to be, it does not say what they imagine it to say. I will show them what it really does say and I will show them that they will do well to accept this real teaching of the Bible instead of the phantom with which they have so long been cheated. I will show their governments that they will do well to remodel the national churches, to make of them institutions informed with the spirit of the true Bible instead of institutions informed with the spirit of this false phantom. The comments of men, Spinoza said, had been foisted into the Christian religion. The pure teaching of God had been lost sight of. He determined, therefore, to go again to the Bible, to read it over and over with a perfectly unprejudiced mind, and to accept nothing as its teaching which it did not clearly teach. He began by constructing a method or set of conditions indispensable for the adequate interpretation of Scripture. These conditions are such, he points out, that a perfectly adequate interpretation of Scripture is now impossible. For example, to understand any prophet thoroughly, we ought to know the life, character, and pursuits of that prophet under what circumstances his book was composed and in what state and through what hands it has come down to us and in general most of this we cannot now know still the main sense of the books of scripture may be clearly seized by us himself a jew with all the learning of his nation and a man of the highest natural powers spinoza had in the difficult task of seizing this sense every aid which special knowledge or preeminent faculties could supply in what then he asked does scripture interpreted by its own aid and not by the aid of rabbinical traditions or greek philosophy allege its own divinity to consist in a revelation given by god to the prophets now all knowledge is a divine revelation but prophecy, as represented in Scripture, is one of which the laws of human nature, considered in themselves alone, cannot be the cause. Therefore nothing must be asserted about it except what is clearly declared by the prophets themselves, for they are our only source of knowledge on a matter which does not fall within the scope of our ordinary knowing faculties. But ignorant people, not knowing the Hebrew genius and phraseology, and not attending to the circumstances of the speaker, often imagine the prophets to assert things which they do not. The prophets clearly declare themselves to have received the revelation of God through the means of words and images, not as Christ through immediate communication of the mind with the mind of God. Therefore the prophets excelled other men by the power and vividness of their representing and imagining faculty, not by perfection of their mind. This is why they perceived almost everything through figures and expressed themselves so variously and so improperly concerning the nature of God. Moses imagined that God could be seen and attributed to him the passions of anger and jealousy. Micaiah imagined him sitting on a throne with the host of heaven on his right and left hand. 
Daniel as an old man with a white garment and white hair, Ezekiel as fire, the disciples of Christ thought they saw the Spirit of God in the form of a dove, the apostles in the form of fiery tongues. Whence then could the prophets be certain of the truth of a revelation which they received through the imagination and not by a mental process? For only an idea can carry the sense of its own certainty along with it, not an imagination. To make them certain of the truth of what was revealed to them, a reasoning process came in. They had to rely on the testimony of a sign, and above all on the testimony of their own conscience that they were good men and spoke for God's sake. Either testimony was incomplete without the other. Even the good prophet needed for his message the confirmation of a sign. But the bad prophet, the utter of an immoral doctrine, had no certainty for his doctrine, no truth in it, even though he confirmed it by a sign. The testimony of a good conscience was therefore the prophet's grand source of certitude. Even this, however, was only a moral certitude, not a mathematical one, for no man can be perfectly sure of his own goodness. The power of imagining, the power of feeling what goodness is, and the habit of practicing goodness were therefore the sole essential qualifications of a true prophet. But for the purpose of the message, the revelation which God designed him to convey, these qualifications were enough. The sum and substance of this revelation was simply, believe in God, and lead a good life. To be the organ of this revelation did not make a man more learned. It left his scientific knowledge as it found it. This explains the contradictory and speculatively false opinions about God and the laws of nature which the patriarchs, the prophets, the apostles entertained. Abraham and the patriarchs knew God only as El Shaddai, the power which gives to every man that which suffices him. Moses knew him as Jehovah, a self-existent being, but imagined him with the passions of a man. Samuel imagined that God could not repent of his sentences, Jeremiah that he could. Joshua, on a day of great victory, the ground being white with hail, seeing the daylight last longer than usual, and imaginatively seizing this as a special sign of the help divinely promised to him, declared that the sun was standing still. To be obeyers of God themselves and inspired leaders of others to obedience and good life did not make Abraham and Moses metaphysicians or Joshua a natural philosopher. His revelation no more changed the speculative opinions of each prophet than it changed his temperament or style. The wrathful Elisha required the natural sedative of music before he could be the messenger of good fortune to Yehoram. The high-bred Isaiah and Nahum have the style proper to their condition, and the rustic Ezekiel and Amos the style proper to theirs. We are not therefore bound to pay heed to the speculative opinions of this or that prophet, for in uttering these he spoke as a mere man, only in exhorting his hearers to obey God and lead a good life was he the organ of a divine revelation. To know and love God is the highest blessedness of man, and of all men alike. To this all mankind are called, and not any one nation in particular. The divine law, properly so named, is the method of life for attaining this height of human blessedness. 
This law is universal, written in the heart, and one for all mankind. Human law is the method of life for attaining and preserving temporal security and prosperity. This law is dictated by a lawgiver, and every nation has its own. In the case of the Jews, this law was dictated by revelation through the prophets. Its fundamental precept was to obey God and to keep His commandments, and it is therefore in a secondary sense called divine. But it was nevertheless framed in respect of temporal things only. Even the truly moral and divine precept of this law to practice for God's sake justice and mercy towards one's neighbor meant for the Hebrew of the Old Testament his Hebrew neighbor only, and had respect to the concord and stability of the Hebrew commonwealth. The Jews were to obey God and to keep his commandments, that they might continue long in the land given to them, and that it might be well with them there. Their election was a temporal one, and lasted only so long as their state. It is now over, and the only election the Jews now have is that of the pious, the remnant, which takes place and has always taken place in every other nation also. Scripture itself teaches that there is a universal divine law, that this is common to all nations alike, and is the law which truly confers eternal blessedness. Solomon, the wisest of the Jews, knew this law, as the few wisest men in all nations have ever known it. But for the mass of the Jews, as for the mass of mankind everywhere, this law was hidden, and they had no notion of its moral action, its vera vita, which conducts to eternal blessedness, except so far as this action was enjoined upon them by the prescriptions of their temporal law. When the ruin of their state brought with it the ruin of their temporal law, they would have lost altogether their only clue to eternal blessedness. Christ came when that fabric of the Jewish state, for the sake of which the Jewish law existed, was about to fall, and he proclaimed the universal divine law. A certain moral action is prescribed by this law, as a certain moral action was prescribed by the Jewish law. But he who truly conceives the universal divine law conceives God's decrees adequately as eternal truths. And for him, moral action has liberty and self-knowledge, while the prophets of the Jewish law inadequately conceived God's decrees as mere rules and commands, and for them moral action had no liberty and no self-knowledge. Christ, who beheld the decrees of God as God himself beholds them, as eternal truths, proclaimed the love of God and the love of our neighbor as commands, only because of the ignorance of the multitude to those to whom it was given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, he announced them as he himself perceived them as eternal truths. And the apostles, like Christ, spoke to many of their hearers as unto carnal, not spiritual, presented to them, that is, the love of God and their neighbor as a divine command authenticated by the life and death of Christ, not as an eternal idea of reason carrying its own warrant along with it. The presentation of it as this latter their hearers were not able to bear. The apostles, moreover, though they preached and confirmed their doctrine by signs as prophets, 
wrote their epistles not as prophets but as doctors and reasoners the essentials of their doctrine indeed they took not from reason but like the prophets from fact and revelation they preached belief in god and goodness of life as a catholic religion existing by virtue of the passion of christ as the prophets had preached belief in god and goodness of life as a national religion existing by virtue of the mosaic covenant but while the prophets announced their message in a form purely dogmatical the apostles developed theirs with the forms of reasoning and argumentation according to each apostle's ability and way of thinking and as they might best commend their message to their hearers and for their reasonings they themselves claim no divine authority submitting them to the judgment of their hearers thus each apostle built essential religion on a non-essential foundation of his own and as saint paul says avoided building on the foundations of another apostle which might be quite different from his own hence the discrepancies between the doctrine of one apostle and another between that of st paul for example and that of st james but these discrepancies are in the non-essentials not given to them by revelation and not in essentials human churches seizing these discrepant non-essentials as essentials one maintaining one of them another another have filled the world with unprofitable disputes have turned the church into an academy and religion into a science or rather a wrangling and have fallen into endless schism what then are the essentials of religion according to both the old and the new testament very few and very simple the precept to love god and our neighbor the precepts of the first chapter of isaiah wash you make you clean put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes cease to do evil learn to do well seek judgment relieve the oppressed judge the fatherless plead for the widow the precepts of the sermon on the mount which add to the foregoing the injunction that we should cease to do evil and learn to do well not to our brethren and fellow-citizens only but to all mankind it is by following these precepts that belief in god is to be shown if we believe in him we shall keep his commandment and this is his commandment that we love one another it is because it contains these precepts that the bible is properly called the word of god in spite of its containing much that is mere history and like all history sometimes true sometimes false in spite of its containing much that is mere reasoning and like all reasoning sometimes sound sometimes hollow these precepts are also the precepts of the universal divine law written in our hearts and it is only by this that the divinity of scripture is established by its containing namely precepts identical with those of this inly written and self-proving law this law was in the world as st john says before the doctrine of moses or the doctrine of christ and what need was there then for these doctrines because the world at large knew not this original divine law in which precepts are ideas and the belief in god the knowledge and contemplation of him reason gives us this law reason 
Augustine tells us that it leads to eternal blessedness, and that those who follow it have no need of any other. But reason could not have told us that the moral action of the universal divine law followed not from a sense of its intrinsic goodness, truth, and necessity, but simply in proof of obedience, for both the Old and New Testament are but one long discipline of obedience, simply because it is so commanded by Moses in virtue of the covenant, simply because it is so commanded by Christ in virtue of his life and passion, can lead to eternal blessedness, which means, for reason, eternal knowledge. Reason could not have told us this, and this is what the Bible tells us. This is that thing which had been kept secret since the foundation of the world. It is thus that by means of the foolishness of the world, God confounds the wise, and with things that are not, brings to naught things that are. Of the truth of the promise thus made to obedience without knowledge, we can have no mathematical certainty, for we can have a mathematical certainty only of things deduced by reason from elements which she in herself possesses. But we can have a moral certainty of it, a certainty such as the prophets had themselves, arising out of the goodness and pureness of those to whom this revelation has been made and rendered possible for us by its contradicting no principles of reason. It is a great comfort to believe it, because as it is only the very small minority who can pursue a virtuous life by the sole guidance of reason, we should, unless we had this testimony of Scripture, be in doubt respecting the salvation of nearly the whole human race. It follows from this that philosophy has her own independent sphere and theology hers, and that neither has the right to invade and try to subdue the other. Theology demands perfect obedience, philosophy perfect knowledge. The obedience demanded by theology and the knowledge demanded by philosophy are like saving. As speculative opinions about God, theology requires only such as are indispensable to the reality of this obedience. The belief that God is, that he is a rewarder of them that seek him, and that the proof of seeking him is a good life. These are the fundamentals of faith, and they are so clear and simple that none of the inaccuracies provable in the Bible narrative the least affect them, and they have indubitably come to us uncorrupted. He who holds them may make, as the patriarchs and prophets did, other speculations about God most erroneous, and yet their faith is complete and saving. Nay, beyond these fundamentals, speculative opinions are pious or impious, not as they are true or false, but as they confirm or shake the believer in the practice of obedience. The truest speculative opinion about the nature of God is impious if it makes its holder rebellious. The falsest speculative opinion is pious if it makes him obedient. Governments should never render themselves the tools of ecclesiastical ambition by promulgating as fundamentals of the national church's faith more than these, and should concede the fullest liberty of speculation. But the multitude, which respects only what astonishes, terrifies, and overwhelms it, by no means takes this simple view of its own religion. 
To the multitude, religion seems imposing only when it is subversive of reason, confirmed by miracles, conveyed in documents materially sacred and infallible, and dooming to damnation all without its pale. But this religion of the multitude is not the religion which a true interpretation of Scripture finds in Scripture. Reason tells us that a miracle, understanding by a miracle a breach of the laws of nature, is impossible, and that to think it possible is to dishonor God, for the laws of nature are the laws of God, and to say that God violates the laws of nature is to say that he violates his own nature. Reason sees, too, that miracles can never attain their professed object, that of bringing us to a higher knowledge of God, since our knowledge of God is raised only by perfecting and clearing our conceptions, and the alleged design of miracles is to baffle them. But neither does Scripture anywhere assert as a general truth that miracles are possible. Indeed, it asserts the contrary, for Jeremiah declares that nature follows an invariable order. Scripture, however, like nature herself, does not lay down speculative propositions. Scriptura definitiones non tradit ut nec etiam natura. It relates matters in such an order and with such phraseology as a speaker, often not perfectly instructed himself, who wanted to impress the hearers with a lively sense of God's greatness and goodness, would naturally employ. As Moses, for instance, relates to the Israelites the passage of the Red Sea without any mention of the east wind which attended it, and which is brought accidentally to our knowledge in another place, so that to know exactly what Scripture means means in the relation of each seeming miracle we ought to know besides the tropes and phrases of the hebrew language the circumstances and also since every one is swayed in the manner of presenting facts by his own preconceived opinions and we have seen what those of the prophets were the preconceived opinions of each speaker but this mode of interpreting scripture is fatal to the vulgar notion of its verbal inspiration of a sanctity and absolute truth in all the words and sentences of which it is composed this vulgar notion is indeed a palpable error it is demonstrable from the internal testimony of the scriptures themselves that the books from the first of the Pentateuch to the last of kings were put together after the first destruction of Jerusalem by a compiler, probably Ezra, who designed to relate the history of the Jewish people from its origins to that destruction. It is demonstrable, moreover, that the compiler did not put his last hand to the work, but left it with its extracts from various and conflicting sources sometimes unreconciled left it with airs of text and unsettled readings the prophetic books are mere fragments of the prophets collected by the rabbins where they could find them and inserted in the canon according to their discretion they at first proposed to admit neither the book of proverbs nor the book of ecclesiastes into the canon and only admitted them because there were found in them passages which commended the law of moses ezekiel also they had determined to exclude but one of their number remodeled him so as to procure his admission the books of ezra nehemiah esther and daniel 
are the work of a single author and were not written till after judas maccabeus had restored the worship of the temple the book of psalms was collected and arranged at the same time before this time there was no canon of the sacred writings and the great synagogue by which the canon was fixed was first convened after the macedonian conquest of asia of that synagogue none of the prophets were members the learned men who composed it were guided by their own fallible judgment in like manner the uninspired judgment of human counsels determined the canon of the new testament end of spinoza and the bible by matthew arnold part one